Hey, Reveal listeners, if you've been listening to American Rehab, you don't need me to tell you about the importance of great investigative journalism. It really helps us when our listeners rate and review us on Apple Podcasts. It's so easy to do, and it helps others find our show. So we've got a bonus for the next 200 people who review us, Reveal Tote Bags. Like our t-shirts, they're simple and elegant, dark blue with the word facts written across the front in bold type. So here's what you got to do. Text the word REVIEW to 474747, and we'll give you instructions on how to get one while supplies last. Again, text the word REVIEW to 474747. You can text STOP at any time, and standard rates apply. And when you leave the review, if you want to tell them that Al Ledson is your all-time favorite host, I mean, I'm not, I'm not going to be mad at that. Thank you so much for your review on Apple Podcasts. It makes a huge difference. From the Center for Investigative Reporting in PRX, this is Reveal. I'm Al Ledson. A lot of people have asked me about whether Mr. Trump knew about the release of the hacked documents, the Democratic National Committee emails ahead of time. And the answer is yes. The Department of Justice and Congress are deep into their investigation of foreign influence in the 2016 election and the possible collusion with Russia by Donald Trump's campaign. There was no uh, collusion. And everybody, even my enemies, have said there is no collusion. We're waiting to find out what's in special counsel Robert Mueller's report. There's still a lot of unknowns. But what we do know is that the Department of Homeland Security and the U.S. intelligence community say Russian hackers got a hold of the Democratic National Committee's email accounts and made thousands of their emails public. That hack and the contents of those emails gave birth to a wild conspiracy theory that came to be known as Pizzagate. Today, we're revisiting a show we did on Pizzagate that originally aired in 2017. It's a story about Russian interference in the presidential election, weaponized fake news, the bots, and the real people who spread it. We begin in Joplin, Missouri. Driving through the city, you can see signs of a huge tornado that hit back in 2011. A lot of homes and businesses were destroyed, and there are all these empty lots that were never redeveloped. In the middle of one is the place reporters Laura Starcheski and Amanda Robb are looking for. Oh, my oh God. there it is. It's a food truck. It's a food truck. Okay. It's a smoothie place called Pineapple Bliss. Is it closed? That's Laura. Can I ask you a question? And that's Amanda. I'm trying to find somebody I've been following on Facebook, and she liked Pineapple Bliss. Um, who is it? Her name's Carmen Katz. She goes by Carmen Katz on Facebook. Do you know who it is? No idea? The thing is, they're not even sure if the person they're looking for is real. If I show you a picture of her cat, would that help? Amanda and Laura are trying to find this person because she was the first one we found who posted anything on Facebook about Pizzagate. Laura and Amanda have been investigating this story for months, working with our team at Reveal and the nonprofit newsroom Type Investigations. Amanda wrote a piece for Rolling Stone magazine. And Amanda, can you explain what the conspiracy theory is? The conspiracy theory is that Hillary Clinton and her Democratic underlings and colleagues are running a sex trafficking ring out of the basement of the pizzeria called Comet Ping Pong Pizzeria in Northwest Washington, D.C. One of the many problems with the conspiracy theory is there is no basement in the pizzeria. The theory is totally false. Okay, Laura, we've heard about lots of fake news stories and lots of conspiracy theories. Why did you guys decide to look into Pizzagate? Well, first of all, we know that Pizzagate was one of those fake news stories that may have affected the outcome of the 2016 election. And everybody may not remember this part, but for a fake news story, Pizzagate got really real because a guy who actually believed it went to that pizza shop in Washington, D.C., and he shot a gun. Yeah, I remember. No one was hurt, but this was still a huge story. Right. So we wanted to know, was there somebody who planted the story? And why would they do that? And the first clue you guys had was Carmen Katz's Facebook post. 
It went up on October 29th, 10 days before the election. Laura, why don't you read some of that post for us? Okay. It says, my NYPD source said it's much more vile and serious. We're talking an international child enslavement and sex ring. Not even Hillary's most ardent supporters and defenders will be able to excuse this, exclamation point. So Carmen's profile says she lives in Joplin, but there's no Carmen cats in the phone book there. And her profile picture is just a photo of a gray and white cat. And so since she was like the first poster that we could find, Amanda and I decided like, okay, well, we've got to go to Missouri and try to find her and figure out like, how did she know about this and where did she get it from? Why did she post this? And so that's how we went to Joplin with a picture of the cat. So you go... Both of you travel down to Joplin, Missouri to find a woman and all you go armed with is a picture of a cat. You're following the story really well. Meow. (laughs) (laughs) Our whole plan was to go to businesses that Carmen liked on Facebook. So the next place we went was Jug's Liquor, J-U-G-Z. Um, because Carmen Katz said she had bought a bottle of Bones rum at this liquor store that was signed by the person who made it. So we were like, okay, that, that sounds like a memory. That's not just I picked up a bottle of rum. Maybe they'll remember her. Have you tried Bones rum? No. Step into my lair. So the owner, Lynetta, uh, she brings us behind this makeshift bar. And she fixed us a, a pretty disgusting cocktail that had bones, rum, and chocolate wine in it. That sounds utterly disgusting. It was. (laughs) It was disgusting. She kind of acknowledged that it should be disgusting, but she really liked it. Um, This is all before noon, by the way, on a Saturday. Uh, And we drank the chocolate s'mores drink with her, um, but she had no idea who Carmen Katz was. I wish you knew who Carmen Katz was. I wish I could find her because I'd go smack her myself. I'm not a Hillary fan, Mm -hmm. but that's the stupid crap Mm -hmm. that just makes people look stupid. And she better not be from Missouri. So did you ever find the cat lady? We spent three days looking for her, and at the end of the third day, we were basically ready to give up. We went back to our hotel in despair, and I went back through Carmen Katz's Facebook feed, which I'd printed out for, it must have been the 800th time I'd gone through it. And I saw that she had posted change.org petitions, and they were things like, please put President Trump on Mount Rushmore. And the last person to sign every single one was someone named Cynthia Campbell. So you think Cynthia Campbell, Campbell is Carmen Katz? No way. It has to be. Who else could it be? Huh. And when you went to Cynthia Campbell on change.org... Cynthia Campbell. All right, so... It's the cat! Oh, my God. Her profile picture was the same cat. I've seen that cat before. That's the cat. So after all that work, you finally found the cat. What about the woman? There is a Cynthia Campbell who lives in Joplin. So we called... And I left very polite messages asking to speak to her. Hi, it's Amanda Rowe. About the Carmen Katz account on Facebook, and she didn't call back. Maybe we can sort this whole thing out together and figure it out. So we went to her home, which is a brick bungalow on a nice leafy street. We knock, and it kind of sounds like someone's inside. Like we heard some noises inside. But nobody came to the door. So we left, we came back, we knocked again. Still nobody comes to the door. Amanda is texting with her and calling her. Finally, she starts texting back. And then a couple more minutes after that, she calls. Oh, she's calling me. Cynthia? Amanda and Cynthia Campbell, a.k.a. Carmen Katz, talked for like 20 minutes. Um, We didn't get permission to use that call. So I'll just like basically tell you what she told us. She said that she did create the Carmen Katz Facebook page, but she claimed it had been hacked 
She said she didn't know anything about the specific anti-Hillary pro-Trump posts. She didn't know about the NYPD sources Pizzagate post. She said, um, yes, I created that account, but I didn't create those specific posts. I think I was hacked. I don't really understand what this is all about. And she was very nice. And so Amanda hangs up the phone. Bye-bye. And I'm thinking, like, okay, we're going to get to talk to her a lot. Surely we can get to the bottom of this. We didn't really believe her, but we figured there would be more chances. Unfortunately, like right after that, her tone totally changed. She starts texting all of this stuff, saying we were the ones that hacked her Facebook page. She threatened to sue me. She threatened to call the ACLU on me. She threatened to call the Geek Squad on me. She told me I'd ruined her life. She told me I was soul-sucking. And she called me fake news. Fake news. I mean, that... That sort of feels like a dead end, like there's nowhere to go from there. Well, there was somewhere to go because if you think about it, it does seem kind of weird that this random woman in Missouri would have invented this whole thing. So Amanda and I spent a lot of time digging back into all these creepy anonymous parts of the Internet. We did find a post on 4chan from July That's an anonymous message board where one user called FBI Anon used some of the same language. So Carmen could have gotten some of her post from there. And then there's another strand of Pizzagate that goes back to October 7th. That was just a few weeks before Carmen posted. You remember the Russians had hacked the Democratic Party's emails. In October, thousands of those emails went up on WikiLeaks from a guy named John Podesta. He ran Hillary Clinton's campaign. And in John Podesta's emails, there are a few references to pizza. And a couple references to Comet Ping Pong. Podesta knew the owner, and Democrats would hold fundraisers there. In the emails, they did talk a lot about pizza. People thought it was code for something. People on Reddit came to see, like, cheese pizza, CP, standing for child pornography. And the restaurant starts getting, like, you know, people calling them, tons of people calling them, threatening them. Um, All the employees are getting threats. People are basically saying, like, you guys are a bunch of pedophiles, you're perverts, you know, we're going to come and get you, we're going to shut this down. Laura and Amanda went to northwest Washington, D.C. We're here for Mr. Alifantis. They're here to meet the owner of Comet Ping Pong, James Alifantis. No, he's expecting us. Is he? I don't know how to really describe him. He's like totally late, always seems to be like running way behind, running around. How's it going? Uh, James hasn't arrived yet. Can we get you guys some pizza? Or if you guys want to walk around, James, if you're allowed in. He's super friendly, seemed to know everyone. Comet Ping Pong is this big cavernous restaurant. There's a bar on one side. There's tons of tables full of families. In the back, there's a whole game room with kids playing ping pong. Before November 4th, like right before the election, Comet Ping Pong was this pizza place that James ran, and he was super proud of it. And it was it's like a community institution. And then after November 4th, really everything changed. James gets a call from this D.C. reporter asking him, like, do you know that your restaurant is at the center of this conspiracy theory on Reddit? I mean, literally, my response was like, what is Reddit? Because I didn't even know. In case you haven't heard of it, Reddit is an anonymous online message board. And so they began to look into it a little, and they were like, wow, did you know there's an entire page on Reddit devoted to Comet Ping Pong and this theory about Hillary Clinton and human trafficking or something? And I was like, that's insane. James thought the harassment would die down after the presidential election. Instead, it got worse. And the voices became louder, more filled with hate, more harassing, more direct messages, and the volume of messages increased immensely. 
And then it all came to a head. On December 4, 2016, a 28-year-old man from North Carolina named Edgar Madison Welch became obsessed with the Pizzagate story and drove up to Comet Ping Pong armed with three guns and a knife. He fired off three rounds inside the restaurant, and when he found out no kids were being held there, he surrendered to the police. Back when we were working on this story, we filed a request for the police body cameras from Welch's arrest. It took the D.C. police over a year to get us this video. Nobody else? What are you doing in the location? Making sure there's nothing there. Making sure there's nothing there for regarding yeah, what? Pedophile ring. Regarding what? Pedophile ring. Pizza gate. How did the hoax take on that much power? Laura and Amanda try to answer that question, and it takes them to the darkest corners of the Internet. They track the Twitter feeds of bots and trolls and meet fake news profiteers from Missouri all the way to Macedonia. When we come back, Pizzagate gets a push from a private investigator in Erie, Pennsylvania, who says he has evidence. All of the components are here to expose the greatest perversion, the greatest satanic, and I mean satanic, cabal of people that are associated with Hillary Clinton and the people in the halls of power in the United States. You're listening to Reveal from the Center for Investigative Reporting and PRX. Reveal is brought to you by the University of Virginia and the Sacred and Profane podcast. We often hear it's not polite to bring up religion, but we lose so much when we don't talk about religion. Sacred and Profane is a podcast that isn't afraid to tackle religion. Next up, the long-standing problem of discriminatory policing against religious and racial minorities in France. Sacred and Profane is produced by the Religion, Race, and Democracy Lab at the University of Virginia. Catch season two wherever you listen to podcasts. Support for Reveal comes from Blinds.com. Transforming your home into even more of a sanctuary is easy and affordable with Blinds.com. They make it simple to shop top-quality blinds, shades, and interior shutters from home with easy online ordering and free shipping. Blinds.com has helped millions of homeowners through the process, and they guarantee the perfect fit whether you DIY or have them install everything for you. Go right now and see how much you can save at Blinds.com. Rules and restrictions may apply. From the Center for Investigative Reporting and PRX, this is Reveal. I'm Al Letson. Today, we're bringing you a show that originally aired in the fall of 2017, when we teamed up with the nonprofit newsroom Type Investigations and Rolling Stone magazine to deconstruct Pizzagate. Reveal's Laura Starczewski and reporter Amanda Robb started by trying to find a woman in Missouri who used the online name Carmen Katz. She was the first person to post about it on Facebook. They tracked her down, but she said she was hacked and knew nothing about it. We could go backwards from the Carmen Katz post into the deep, dark web looking for pieces of DNA of the story. Or we could go forwards from the Carmen Katz post and see how the story actually spread to go from dozens to hundreds to hundreds of thousands and reaching millions of people. We're going to do both. We asked Reveal's data editor, Mike Corey, to help us out. Hey, Mike. Hi, Al. So, Mike, can you describe how a story like Pizzagate goes viral on the web? When something goes viral on Twitter, it really ultimately goes back to one tweet or a couple of tweets that for some reason catch fire. And you can sort of think of it like, you know, in Fantasia, when Mickey Mouse chops up the broom. So what was one broom turns into five brooms, which turns into 25 brooms, which turns into 100 brooms, and it just keeps building and building exponentially. Until you have this flood of tweets going on. That really all go back to a couple individual uh, tweets at the beginning. So to understand that, we're going to get a sample of tweet data, and so we can understand who was tweeting about this, when were they tweeting about this, and what was going on at that time. While Mike gets started on that, Laura and Amanda are going to track how the story popped out of Facebook and spread across social media. Like we said, that Carmen Katz Facebook post was on October 29th. Now, the next day, someone takes a screen grab of that post and tweets it out. 
This goes um, straight from Carmen Katz within 12 hours to a Twitter account at David Goldberg NY. He says, yes, I confirm this. I'm hearing the same thing from my secret NYPD source. So we don't know who this guy is. If he even lives in New York, he claims to be a New York lawyer. We don't even know if he's a guy. For his avatar, he uses a photo of a man with a large photoshopped nose. White supremacists have been using this picture on social media for years as an anti-Semitic meme. After he posts it, it gets shared at least 6,000 times on Twitter. And the very, very next day, it becomes a news story at a site called yournewswire.com, which is a fake news site. So eventually the story would get picked up by lots of fake news sites. And we wanted to understand just a little bit about that market. Like, why were they carrying this story? So Amanda started talking to people in the fake news business. And this is the part of the story that takes Amanda all the way to Macedonia, about 4,600 miles away. Um, tell me your name and tell me what you do. I'm Borce, and I'm web developer and web designer. She meets Borce Pechev in Velez, a depressed former factory town. It also happens to be the home of many of the fake news websites that popped up during the 2016 election, about 100 of them. So I met Borcha at an outdoor cafe, and he looks like Eeyore <laughs> in Winnie the Pooh. He's a very sad-looking guy, very melancholy. So he makes extra money by setting up fake news sites. And he charges 100 euro a pop. Uh, I don't know if you can say that we are uh, fake news capital of the world, but we are sharing the fake news capital of the world. <laughs> probably, probably this is the best, the best description of, of our town. Because they don't actually invent fake news there. They just copy-paste it from American fake news sites. In Macedonia, this business model is not new. Borcha had been doing this for a while. He used to make fake news websites about muscle cars and health and yachts. But business was sort of slowing down. It was getting to be a crowded market. So during the primary elections, one of his clients and he were brainstorming about what a new good fake news business would be. And they thought, well, there's a lot of interest in the American presidential election. Why don't we try politics? This is kind of important to understand. The people making the Macedonian fake news sites didn't have anything against Hillary themselves. They just knew that people would click on Hillary stories. Hillary's point of interest when, you, when you're writing a hate speech. She needs to be locked. She needs to go to jail. She's involved in this crime. She's involved in that crime. People would, I mean, everyone, everywhere in the world uh, love, love to, to read stories about how someone would go to jail. <laughs> and um, do you remember the story about her being a pedophile, like her being running a pedophile ring? There are many stories about that. There are stories about she's involved with ISIS, with pedophilia, etc. I don't know what else. But as I said, 100% of the articles are from the American side. They copied and pasted fake news from websites in America, like Glenn Beck's site The Blaze or Breitbart. And there were Americans who ran fake news websites, too. Amanda and I met a guy from St. Louis who said he made six figures during the election. For them, fake news is not about politics. It's just a really good way to make money. The dollars were flowing and the rumors kept going just as the presidential election was in its last crazy week. Pizzagate was bouncing back and forth between social media and fake news sites, but it was still on the fringes. Then something happened on November the 2nd. This is the end, whether Hillary steals it or not. The globalist dynasty is on fire. This is a show called InfoWars. It's a webcast and a radio show hosted by this guy, Alex Jones. And Alex Jones is a very prolific conspiracy theorist. He says stuff like, no one actually died at the Sandy Hook school shooting, or 9-11 was a hoax. Or he had a guest on one time who said, there's a child slave colony on Mars. Oh, my God. Yeah. <laughs> no. And his audience is huge. The show reaches millions of people. And the first person who actually launched the Pizzagate story on InfoWars was this private investigator living in Erie, Pennsylvania. 
Doug Hagman, thank you for joining us, sir. Take over. Alex, uh, th thanks, for, thanks for having me. Yeah, it, basically everything that you've come up with, my source independent of yours has said. Right Hagman goes on to say that his source knows someone who's affiliated with the NYPD who told him that there's proof of the Pizzagate conspiracy. All of the components are here to expose the greatest perversion, the greatest um, uh, satanic, and I mean satanic, cabal of people that are associated with Hillary Clinton and the people in the halls of our uh, of power in the United States. So we called Mr. Hagman and and he said we could come up and see his courtroom ready documents proving that the former Secretary of State is running a pedophile ring. Hi. You're Mrs. Hagman? Yeah, I'm Renee Hagman. Oh, hi. Hi. Amanda. Hi, Amanda. Hi. This is my colleague Laura. Hi. So we went to his basement studio, which is unbelievably decked out. There's an anchor chair and, and everything. And we asked for the courtroom-ready documents, and he said they were at the copier's and that he hadn't kept a copy. I mean, on the second, you made a big declaration yeah, to the world. I did. And that is based on the—I I made that based in large part on the information I got received from my source. Okay. Okay. And you trust him so much, you I didn't do. have to go back and, like, check it with anybody. You really believe him. I think that's a little bit... Uh, I, no, I, it's, I think that there was enough supporting evidence or supporting um, documentation, not evidence, but documentation, to substantiate the veracity of his assertions. Now... But what documentation? We don't have any. Okay, if you look... Uh, okay. Well, that's true. No, we don't. We don't have any direct. You're going to hit me, aren't you? So he claimed to have courtroom-ready documents, and he didn't have anything. No. It it seems to me like he's I don't know em embarrassed to be confronted by you guys. I thought I was going to have to carry. Laura out in my arms. She was so sad for him. I mean, it was just, it was humiliating. It was awful. And, um, you know, his former claim to fame, like, we looked him up, was he helped break up a uh, cable pirating ring in Erie. And those are his bona fides. For me, as an investigator, I understand how crazy stupid this sounds and how little evidence that is actionable, I can give to you. So I get that. And that's who Alex Jones' expert is. So Hagman doesn't check his sources, and Jones doesn't check his experts, and, and out, goes, out goes the story. It seems like this virus, every time someone contracts it, it adapts, it evolves, and it becomes more deadly, and it keeps going and going and going. That's a really good way to put it. Like, every time somebody else gets it, it mutates and becomes grosser. So it's getting weirder and bigger. Let's talk specifics about how it grew. Reveal's data editor, Michael Corey, is back with us to break it down, and he's been working on getting some Twitter data together to analyze. So what we're actually talking about here is something like one million or so tweets in this one-month period. Mike made this colorful graph that shows the spike in Twitter traffic, starting with the first at David Goldberg NY tweet on October 30th until December 4th, the day Welch fired the gun in the pizzeria. Okay, so if we look at the very start of this chart, it starts at um, October 30th, 2016, and there was just a couple tweets in our sample from that date. It's just, it's just a sample, so we know there's a, probably a few more than that, but there's just a little blip on the 30th of October. Okay, I can see that. There's like, it's just a tiny, tiny little bump. That's when at David Goldberg NY tweeted the Carmen Katz story. Oh, okay. And then after October 30th, there's, there's not much going on in our data until November 4th. There's, a, there's another little bump that happens in our data. There's a little bit more going on then. Yeah, I see it. That's when um, Eric Prince went on Breitbart. And he also claimed to have NYPD sources. So the plot thickens. NYPD was pushing because, uh, you know, as, a, as an article just reached, uh, quoted one of the chiefs, gave us the level just below commissioner. Uh, he said as a parent, as a father with daughters, he could not let 
that level of evil continue. Eric Prince, you might remember, is the guy who started Blackwater, the private security firm the U.S. used in places like Iraq. He was a big donor to the Trump campaign, and his sister is Betsy DeVos, who is now the Secretary of Education. They found a lot of other really damning criminal information, including money laundering, including the fact that Hillary went to this uh, sex island with convicted pedophile Jeffrey Epstein, Uh, Bill Clinton went there more than 20 times. Hillary Clinton went there at least six times. The amount of garbage that they found in these emails of criminal activity by Hillary, by her immediate circle, and even by other um, Democratic members of Congress was so disgusting. They gave it to the FBI, and they said, we're going to go public with this if you don't reopen the investigation, if you don't do the right thing with timely indictments. Prince wasn't the only Trump advocate to push the conspiracy. Michael Flynn tweeted about it, and we found other people who worked for Trump who tweeted it too. But Eric Prince, that was a big deal. He barely ever gives interviews at all. Now he was sticking his neck out to push a crazy conspiracy theory on Breitbart. When you look at Twitter shares or Facebook shares, Breitbart is really the epicenter of this part of the galaxy that we're describing there. We talked to a Harvard professor named Yochai Bankler about this. He studies the Internet, and he looked at how information spread during the 2016 campaign. You really have a major Breitbart node, which clearly had a very powerful social media uh, strategy and visibility. And it is the central node, and it is literally the same size as the Times, the Post are for everything else. When Bankler studied how the media worked during the 2016 campaign, he created this network map. It's like a visualization of all the media outlets out there. And basically, like, what did they do during the campaign season? What did they cover? We collected about two million stories from the year and a half before the election. And that gave us a pretty clear image of who was producing media and connecting to whom, and who was paying attention uh, to what. I was stunned that Breitbart pulled Fox to the right during the election. On the visualization map, you could actually see it. My initial thought was that we probably measured wrong. It was so, uh, it was so uh, surprising. But when you look at the right, you really see a completely separate constellation of planets Uh, orbiting around a Breitbart that is as bright and influential as anything there is throughout the entire rest of the system. Breitbart was a sleeper powerhouse, and it became a major influencer. Prince, a former Navy SEAL, was the ultimate Pizzagate validator. Now the story had legs. Pizzagate Twitter traffic spiked. I, Donald John Trump, do solemnly swear that I will So we all know what happened in the election on November 8th. Trump won the Electoral College and became president. But that didn't stop the spread of Pizzagate. It actually grew after the election. So then the next major thing looks like is November 16th. There's a decent-sized spike all of a sudden. Once again, that's Reveal's data editor, Mike Corey. Yes. Two things happened that day. Yeah. One, the story gets picked up in Turkey. Um, and Turkey was. In Turkey? In Turkey. Yeah, Pizzagate was huge in Turkey. I had no idea. It was front page news all over Turkey. And it hit on the 16th. And then the other thing that happened on the 16th was Jack Posobiec. He went to Comet Ping Pong, to the pizzeria, and he live periscoped his investigation where he was going to go inside Comet Ping Pong and find out once and for all if there was any truth to the rumor. I was feeling a little bit hungry tonight and I decided that I wanted to go for some pizza. 
So, let's go take a look, shall we? Comet Pizza, here we go. Jack Posobiec is like a Twitter troll extraordinaire. He's an agitator. He worked with the right-wing dirty trickster Roger Stone during the Trump campaign. Jack goes into Comet Ping Pong. He's got his phone sticking out of his front shirt pocket. I, I turned it off. I, I understand that. I understand that to you, this is maybe like a game. But considering that I myself and my staff receive death threats, it's it's many not a game. A it's not anything. He orders garlic knots. Before he can try them, he gets kicked out of Comet Ping Pong. I can't control what somebody posts on the internet, what someone comments. Well, you're throwing me out. I am because... He's still filming. He goes outside, and it's like as if his mind was blown by what he saw inside, which was nothing. There was nothing to see. It was just a normal pizza place. The threat level here is much higher, much higher than I thought it would be. The the stuff that was going on is much, much worse than I thought it would be. And this, we were dealing with something. We were dealing with some high level stuff here, guys. We were doing some very high level stuff. There are people here that have a lot of interests and a lot of money. So they have a big secret that they are trying to hide. So when Jack Posobiec live streams his trip to Comet Ping Pong on Twitter, we saw another big spike in the tweets about Pizzagate. But it wasn't at its peak just yet. So after the 16th, it kind of drops off again, and then boom, there's this big hit, this big spike on the 20th, then the peak is the 21st. So what happened then? That's when the New York Times publishes a debunking story. James Elefantis, the owner of Comet Ping Pong, um, actually really, really wanted the New York Times to publish the story because he thought it would debunk it. He thought that having the truth out there would help. Apparently not. It seems to have only fueled the fire. Yeah, like if you look at the graph, this is this is like the event. This is the big spike. It just takes off at, the, at this point. And then so, so there's that really big peak and then there's like another valley and then there's like something else on November 28th. There's like another spike where it's almost up. It's almost up to that stratosphere again. Something happened on the 28th? The day before that, Alex Jones put out this, like, short, quote, documentary, unquote, called Pizzagate is Real. Now, if you're a radio listener, this is a powerful video, but I've, I've had it reposted. So this is real stuff going on. Here it is. This all began after WikiLeaks founder Julian Assange released hundreds of thousands of secret documents detailing a backstabbing Clinton Foundation. So this video goes out on the InfoWars YouTube channel. Why is the artwork adorning Comet Ping Pong's walls at the very least so insanely creepy, especially for a family restaurant? The clip is basically a list of things that are supposed to be proof of Pizzagate. In code words. Now, clues. The menu from Comet Ping Pong. Notice the symbol of the ping pong paddles and its clever resemblance to the FBI document's symbol for child love. This video is the one that really inspires Edgar Madison Welch, the guy who went into Comet Ping Pong with an assault rifle. The art they tweet and Facebook is of children being murdered, cut in pieces, and raped by men with giant genitalia. Alex Jones has since publicly apologized for spreading Pizzagate, but this is what he was saying in 2016. It's up to you to research it for yourself, but you got to go to Infowars.com and actually see the photos and videos inside these places. You've got to see their menus. You've got to see it all, ladies and gentlemen. And Welch did exactly what Alex Jones asked his listeners to do. He went to investigate Comic Ping Pong for himself. Welch wasn't the only one caught up in Pizzagate. Fake news infiltrated the American mind with an assist from Russia. 126 million users saw these Russian propaganda posts, which is just an enormous number. Coming up next on Reveal. From the Center for Investigative Reporting and PRX, this is Reveal. I'm Al Letson. Today, we're bringing you a show we first aired in 2017. 
It's about Pizzagate, the completely false conspiracy theory that Hillary Clinton and her former campaign chair, John Podesta, ran a child sex trafficking ring out of the basement of a pizza place in Washington, D.C. Keep in mind, there is no proof of any kind. Reporters Amanda Robb of the nonprofit newsroom Type Investigations and Reveal's Laura Starcheski looked into this and found that some of the people spreading this story the most weren't people at all. Throughout our reporting, we've been looking at our list of tweets about Pizzagate, tweets that went out right around the election last year, so we can understand exactly how the story spread. And we took the top 10 most prolific tweeters on our list to this professor, Sam Woolley. He researches social media and propaganda at a place called the Digital Intelligence Lab in Palo Alto, California. The account is, like, without a shadow of a doubt, highly automated. It makes use of some kind of software to tweet because it has tens of thousands of tweets in its relatively short lifespan. When Woolley says automation, he's talking about bots. Bot as in robot. A bot is a piece of computer software built to do an automated task that a person would otherwise have to do. Bots have existed on the internet since the internet was made public. So Woolley actually did this study with some of his colleagues at Oxford University, where they looked at Twitter bots specifically during the 2016 presidential campaign. What I talk about when I talk about bots usually uh, are social bots. And social bots are bots that are built to mimic human behavior. So they look like a real person, but they actually are using a fake identity. And uh, during recent political events over the last several years, social bots have been used in attempts to manipulate public opinion. We wanted to look into this, and we found something really weird. On our list of Pizzagate tweets, 41% of them ended up getting deleted, or they came from accounts that got deleted, or were suspended, or were made private. So I asked Woolley, what does that mean about who was spreading Pizzagate? Right. Well, the first thing that really speaks to me is, is the accounts that were deleted. That's a red flag. A lot of the accounts that were being used to spread effusively pro-Trump automated traffic, those accounts, a few weeks after the election, were deleted. In fact, the day after the election, a lot of those accounts suddenly went missing. I didn't really understand this before, but it turns out that, like, in a modern presidential election campaign, bots are just part of the picture. Donald Trump-related bots, bots that were tweeting on behalf of Donald Trump or in attempts to support his messages in an automated way, were outperforming similar accounts that were working on behalf of Clinton at a rate of five to one. So the, the Clinton botnets were basically, like, way outperformed by the Trump botnets. And if you are watching the news at all lately and like paying attention to all these congressional investigations into Russian influence, you're probably wondering, Mm -hmm. were these Russian bots? That's a really good question. I mean, it it feels like an international spy thriller with all these Russian bots. I know it's like the Cold War never ended, right? And Congress has been looking into whether Russia interfered with our elections with propaganda spread on social media. And I don't know how much you've been following this, Al, but it's pretty nuts. Yeah, I've totally been checking it out. I actually got into a Twitter exchange with one of the fake Russian accounts that seemed to be an actual person. (laughs) These accounts are everywhere. On Thursday, Twitter announced that it's found 201 accounts that were linked back to potential Russian interference in the 2016 election. We've heard a lot this year about Russia and its attempt to use social media to influence the 2016 presidential election. Announced it will give congressional investigators some three. We still have scratched the surface uh, in terms of our major foreign power. With the sophistication and ability Russia trolls to involve We're encouraging both sides to battle in the streets and create division between real Americans. Congress released a list of social media accounts that their investigators say were set up and run by a Russian company called the Internet Research Agency. The company's tied to the Kremlin, and we wanted to see if any of those accounts turned up on our list of Pizzagate tweets. So we brought in someone on the Reveal staff who's just as obsessed with Pizzagate as me and Amanda. Hey, Aaron. Hey, how's it going? Aaron Sankin is Reveal's internet and cybersecurity reporter. What we basically want to know from you is, like, 
is there evidence that Pizzagate was spread by Russia? So from our initial sample of people who tweeted about Pizzagate between October 30th and December 4th of last year, we found 15 tweets that came from Russian propaganda accounts. The earliest of these tweets on November 8th came wait, from an... Wait, hold on. You're going wait, to wait, slow, slow down. down. Fif- we found 15 Pizzagate tweets that came right from these Russian propaganda accounts? Yep. <laughs> um, it's mind-blowing to me. It is mind-blowing to me. The earliest of these tweets, which was on November 8th, came from an account with the handle uh, Calvin Chambers. And it also tagged uh, conservative Fox Media personalities, Sean Hannity and Lou Dobbs. Um, To try to get them to kind of like latch onto it and push it out themselves. Yeah, I think it was an attempt to spread this to people with a uh, larger uh, public platform to spread the narrative. Mm hmm. So there was another account, uh, Garrett Simpson, that retweeted a tweet from the uh, Trump-supporting former sitcom star Roseanne Barr on November 23rd. Oh, my God. So it's kind of like a word salad of a whole bunch of different uh, uh, far-right conspiracy theories uh, that, that loop in Pizzagate. Okay, wait. So that's a tweet from Roseanne Barr that was retweeted by one of these Russian accounts. Yeah. Okay. So Roseanne Barr tweeted about Pizzagate. Then a Russian propaganda account liked it and retweeted it. They thought this is a good thing. We'll help get out there. Yeah, I think so. Or they just, you know, were fans of the Roseanne show, which was you know, oh a God. great show in the 90s. What's Twitter going to do to stop this from happening again? And what's Facebook going to do and YouTube going to do and Google going to do? Um, you're getting a lot of, you know, you're getting Facebook just really starting now to take this seriously. So, for example, they recently made public that 126 million users saw these uh, Russian propaganda posts, which is just an enormous number. So much of this stuff is just breaking right now. And even what we have now about this is only the, the tip of the iceberg. This whole thing is a lot bigger than just the Clinton-Trump election um, and the campaigns of 2016, because Pizzagate kept going after the 2016 election was over. Right. Pizzagate went viral after the presidential election was over. And that viral activity is what, if you want to use the word, infected Edgar Madison Welsh down in North Carolina. This is where Pizzagate had real-world consequences for the pizzeria owner and his staff and for the shooter. To recap, on December 4th, 2016, a guy named Edgar Madison Welch became obsessed with the conspiracy theory and the idea that he was the one who had to go save all the children he thought were being held at Kam Ping Pong. And so he snuck out of the house before dawn, before his girlfriend and his two daughters woke up. He drove from North Carolina to Washington, D.C. with a handgun and a semi-automatic rifle. On the way, he made a suicide video. It's hard to hear him in this recording, but he's saying that he needed to do this because he needed to sacrifice himself to save the children. When he gets to the pizzeria, he starts looking for the basement. All he finds is a locked door. He shoots it up, only to discover there is no basement. D.C. police say this North Carolina man, 28-year-old Edgar Madison Welch, was inspired by a lie spread online to walk into this D.C. pizza restaurant with two guns Sunday. Amanda, Laura, what became of Welch? So Edgar Madison Welch surrendered to a SWAT team. Stop! Get down on your knees. Get on the ground. Lay prone on the ground. What, what weapons do you have back there? This is from the police body cam video we got a hold of from Welch's arrest. In this shot, he's laying face down on the asphalt. His hands are cuffed behind his back. How'd you get up here? He was arraigned on federal charges and he was placed in solitary confinement and he eventually pled guilty and now his life and his family's life is, is ruined. And back at Comet Ping Pong, 
the owner, James Elephantis, I mean, his life is also changed forever by this. This man is going to spend years in jail and years in supervised probation. And my really name has been torn to shreds. And then there's all these other people who continue to perpetrate these lies and conspiracy theories online. And there are absolutely no repercussions for these people. And I wonder when they will be held accountable. He still gets death threats anywhere he's reachable on the internet, on social media. He's getting threats. His staff is getting threats. And they can't tell themselves, you know, it's just an internet rumor, like, you know, nothing will happen. They know it can happen. Someone can show up at your restaurant during the Sunday rush with a semi-automatic weapon and start shooting. And they can't unknow that. And there's nothing they can do about it. The social media companies whose platforms spread so much of the fake news are struggling to handle the problem. And Congress doesn't know how to fix it either. Since we originally aired this show, Alex Jones and his Infowars show has been deplatformed, as in banned from YouTube, Twitter, and Facebook. But that's definitely not the end of it. So many big news events now have an accompanying conspiracy theory that is pumped out on Twitter and Facebook and takes on a life of its own. If there's anything we learn from reporting this story, it's that fake news is not going away anytime soon. Pizzagate is just one of a ton of theories, and there's nothing that's been done to effectively control them. That was Reveal's Laura Starczewski. She and Michael Schiller produced today's show. They had a lot of help from cybersecurity reporter Aaron Sankin. For more on Pizzagate, check out Amanda Robb's article in Rolling Stone magazine. Our data editor, Michael Corey, helped us decode our sample of Pizzagate tweets. That information was provided to us by Phil Menser at Indiana University. Thanks to editor Esther Kaplan and researchers Jasper Craven and Jaime Longoria at Type Investigations. We'd also like to thank Rolling Stone magazine and editor Rob Fisher. WHYY provided production help on this episode. Our sound designer is Jay Breezy, Mr. Jim Briggs. He had help this week from Claire Mullen, Catherine Raimondo, Kat Shuknik, and Fernando, my man, yo, Aruda. Our production manager is Najib Amini. Our senior supervising editor is Taki Telenidis. Our CEO is Krista Scharfenberg. Matt Thompson is our editor-in-chief. And our executive producer is Kevin Sullivan. Our theme music is by Camarado, Lightning. Support for Reveals provided by the Reva and David Logan Foundation, the John D. and Catherine T. MacArthur Foundation, the Jonathan Logan Family Foundation, the Ford Foundation, the Heising Simons Foundation, and the Ethics and Excellence in Journalism Foundation. Reveal is a co-production of the Center for Investigative Reporting and PRX. I'm Al Letson, and remember, there is always more to the story.